We're in a series of messages where we've been looking at some of the people that encountered Jesus. And as a result of that encounter with them, their lives were transformed, their lives were changed. And we're tackling the topic of purity today. And this is something that is definitely needed in our world because transformation in this particular area can reap incredible dividends. And from the beginning, I want to tell you that I'm different than a lot of pastors. I don't pretend as if I've got everything right, that I'm above sin or anything like that. Satan attacks me just like he attacks all of you. And none of us are sinless. But as one man said, the longer that we walk with Christ, we will want to sin less and less. So I want to honor you with my life, Lord. That's our motto. And maturity in Christ is our goal. So we can all grow in the area of purity in our thoughts and actions. So today we're going to look at an example. It's a woman who we never would have paid any attention to if it wasn't for the fact that she came in contact with that man that we could never forget. And the heading for this section in your Bible probably says, The Adulterous Woman. It's not flattering, but it's honest. That's what situation she was in. So let's begin by seeing the problem here. And that problem was immorality. So we're in John chapter 8 today. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he went back to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat and taught them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. They forced her to stand before the people, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught having sexual relations with the man who was not her husband. The law of Moses commands that we stone to death every woman who does this. What do you say we should do? Now, the setting of the story was an outdoor festival time, and there were tents set up. People were living in those tents, so it was very easy for someone to commit adultery like this. But it was also very easy for a couple to get caught, and that's exactly what happened here. And Jesus is teaching the truth of God to a group of people that are listening very keenly when a mob of religious leaders come into the area where he is and they're dragging this woman who is half-dressed with them. And there's something suspicious about this because according to the law, such an individual was to be put to death. But they were supposed to bring both parties both the man and the woman, not just one of them. But they just brought the woman and not the man. So this shows us that they weren't really concerned about the law. They were more concerned with trapping Jesus. Here was a situation where they could trick him up. So what are the problem areas that we deal with today? Because immorality is here. It's all around us. And the Gallup organization asked the question, is it morally wrong for a man and woman to have sexual relations before marriage? And back in 1969, 68% of the people said that it was morally wrong. But then a recent study was done, and only 38% said that it was wrong. So we live in a society that promotes premarital sex. 
And I've had people say to me, well, where does it say in the Bible that this is a sin? Well, here's one verse as an example. Wait till you get these words from the King James translation. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness. And and those are some powerful words, but fornication, uncleanness, those are both referring to premarital sex. But Galatians 5.19 in a newer translation is less harsh. The wrong things the sinful self does are clear. Being sexually unfaithful, not being pure, taking part in sexual sins. So we're actually sending our children out into a world in which we don't expect them to make it morally. That's what our society is saying. How about extramarital affairs? It's interesting to note that this particular statistic has actually gone favorably in the last 30 years because 30 years ago, only 69% of the people said that it was morally wrong. And now 89% of the people say that it's morally wrong. But this doesn't make sense because the number of affairs and infidelity has gone up in the past 30 years. So it's as if people are communicating, well, yes, I say that that's wrong, but I don't really care. I'm going to do what I want. Now, growing up as a young boy on PEI on the farm, we would go out, milk the cows, come in for breakfast, and then we would read the Journal Pioneer newspaper. And there was always an, an article in there. It was an advice columnist by the name of Ann Landers. And she received this letter. Dear Anne, I have a problem. I am happily married to a wonderful wife. We have two children, but I have also been seeing another young lady for the past six months. My problem is that I love both of them. What should I do? And then he signed it confused. And then he said, P.S., don't give me any of that morality stuff. And, and I love Ann Lander's response. She said, Dear Confused, The only difference between animals and humanity is morality. I suggest you contact your local veterinarian. She always had great answers like that. The Bible says that your body is the temple of God and that his spirit lives inside of you. And that means that you were created in God's image. And God created sex, and it is enjoyable, but it's designed to be within the parameters of his plan in order to glorify him. Then the Bible teaches about living together. And if you're enjoying this list and thinking maybe this is the end of it, there's still another one after this. But there are several different reasons why the Bible teaches against this. One is that it's sexual immorality. It's physical relations outside of the realm of marriage. It also gives the appearance of evil to those who are looking at you, especially if you are a Christian. And... It promotes physical intimacy prior to the marital commitment. Sociologist David Pompanol, I think we have this on the screen, he did an extensive study in which he found that this type of living arrangement is becoming increasingly acceptable. However, he notes, ironically, couples that live together have a much higher divorce rate than those who don't. And Reader's Digest even recognized that in an article I read a number of years ago. 
So the number of people who live together and then are involved in spousal abuse skyrockets if they have lived together prior to marriage. So don't get drawn offside because there are so many who seemingly choose the world's wisdom over God's wisdom. Then the last one is one that we don't talk about very much. I've got 15 children I counted here this morning, and this is my topic here today. Usually the kids aren't here. But it's the topic of lust. And Jesus raised the standard in the New Testament from what it was in the Old Testament. In Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said, You must not be guilty of adultery. But I tell you that if anyone looks at a woman and wants to sin sexually with her, in his mind he has already done that sin with the woman. So it starts with what you allow to come in through your eyeballs. And while women can struggle in this area, it's much more of a problem for men because we are visually stimulated. King David looked out his window and he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof of their house. And through a series of, acti- excuse me, through a series of events, he ended up having an affair with her. People get confused on what lust actually is. It's not noticing beauty. It's the second and the third and the fourth glance when the mind begins to wander and then it begins to affect the heart. John Maxwell gave this definition of what lust is. He said, lust is a thought that I cherish and I hold on to and I entertain. But if I did what I thought, it would clearly be sin. One guy said, it's like a battering ram. Thousands of times it bangs into the gate of that fortress, and it just doesn't seem to be making any difference. And then all of a sudden, the gate just collapses. And that's the way it can be with us and the temptation that we allow ourselves to give into. So this woman in John 8 had fallen into a promiscuous lifestyle, but I want you to see the response she received. No doubt the women in town just kind of rolled their eyes when she walked by. The men, well, they might have looked and smiled a little bit or maybe would have been, no, a shake because of the head because they weren't in favor of the lifestyle that she lived. But what was society's response? The culture in the first century wasn't all that different from our culture today. And we picture this woman being thrown to the ground before Jesus, but she wasn't that lucky. She wasn't that fortunate because John 3, verse 3 of John 8, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. They forced her to stand before the people. So grabbing whatever clothing she could, she desperately tries to cover herself And she didn't get the privilege of being able to be on the ground where she could bury her face and not have people look at her. But she is standing right there in their midst with no place to hide. So now we see society's response to all of this. First of all, society's response is often one of judgment. And that's what it was for this this woman These religious leaders, they were going to take those stones and they were going to pound that lust out of her life. The other response that sometimes occurs is that of apathy. 
our country and our culture, they're on a moral decline. What can I do? I can't do anything. What does it matter what I do? Who am I to judge someone else's behavior? And they usually throw in some spiritual jargon and say with a condescending tone, it's not my place to try and play God. And there's a third response that occurs sometimes. And that response to the morality of our culture is to think that we just join in. If we can't beat them, then we'll join them. We'll go ahead and we'll participate in all the things that they do. And we watch our moral values gradually decline. So it's basically not calling it sin at all and just joining in with the rest of the group. Christians should be concerned with what Christ's response was. So with John 8, 6, we can see that they're asking this question in order to trap him. They have some, want to have some basis to be able to accuse the man. But Jesus bends down onto the ground and he starts to write something with his finger. If he said, don't stone her, then the crowd would have turned against him because he said that he came to fulfill the law and that would be in direct opposition to the law of Moses. If he said, do stoner, they would say, uh, wait a second here, don't you speak about this message of love? And then they would report him to the Romans who didn't permit the Jews to kill anyone. And they would say, who does this guy think he is saying that we should stone this woman? So you can see the tension mounting. What's Jesus going to do? And he just remains so calm and so cool. And he just bends down and he's writing in the ground. Some people said, well, he was writing out the Ten Commandments. And then when he got to do not commit adultery, the people started to leave. Others say that he was writing the names of those who had committed adultery, the ones that were there in that group, and they left one at a time. We don't know what he was writing, but we do know that he didn't answer them. So then chapter 8, verse 7. When they continued to ask Jesus their question, he raised up and said, Anyone here who has never sinned can throw the first stone at her. Then Jesus bent over again and wrote on the ground. And it's, isn't it interesting that the one who actually had the authority to throw stones chose not to. Those who heard Jesus began to leave one by one, first the older men and then the others. And Jesus was left there alone with the woman standing before him. And now she is standing all alone. Her judges have all left. It's been exit, stage left. They're, they're gone. And Jesus watches them slip away quietly from the oldest to the youngest. Then in verse 10, Jesus raised up again and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one judged you guilty? And she answered, No one, sir. Then Jesus said, I also don't judge you guilty. You may go now, but don't sin anymore. So forgiveness was followed by a challenge. He didn't condemn her but he commanded her to leave the life that she was living and to undergo a dramatic transformation. So we've seen society's response and Christ's response. So what's your response? What is it your response going to be to the immoral? Will it be like my daughter Brittany when she was four years of age? 
We didn't want her watching anything on TV that had violence in it. So for today, that would likely be cartoons on YTV. I got in trouble showing my grandson something on that show. It was supposed to be Treehouse, and I got mixed up when we went to YTV. So anyway, Brittany's at the neighbor's, and for some reason, those parents were allowing the kids to watch violent cartoons and shows, and Brittany comes running out of the house, violence, violence, and she figured that was the way to get away from it. And this is the girl that now plays rugby and pounds people on the ground all over the place, but she was running from it. So do you do that? Do you just run from the world? Or do you shake your head and say, what's wrong with those people? Or do you go around and tell other people about the mistakes that you've seen in others? Or do you try to minister to the individuals that you encounter in your life? We've lost some of the seriousness of sin, and, and we've forgotten that sin wounds the heart of God, especially sexual sin. And you're saying, well, wait now, where does the Bible say that that's any different than any other sin? It is in that sin is missing the mark. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. So run away from sexual sin. Every other sin people do is outside their bodies. But those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. You should know that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit who is in you. You have received the Holy Spirit from God. So you do not belong to yourselves because you were bought by God for a price. So honor God with your bodies. So because we've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has come to live in us. My body is not my own. It is possessed by God, so I am to use my body for the purposes and service of God. And if I do something negatively to my body, that is actually going to dishonor God. So we've seen this problem, we've seen the responses, and now let's look at the solution. The Bible doesn't tell us that the woman changed the direction of her life. We certainly hope that she did. We know that Jesus laid the groundwork for it, and we certainly hope that she had a major transformation in her life. But in the Old Testament, there was an incredible example of purity, and it's the story of Joseph. And my message was actually based on this five or six weeks ago. But Joseph worked for Potiphar when he was in Egypt, and he was put in charge of all of his household. But Potiphar's wife noticed that Joseph was well-built and handsome. And as a result, she made constant sexual advances toward him. And Joseph constantly was saying no. But then one day, when there was no one else in the house, all the other servants weren't there, she approached him and said, come to bed with me. And Joseph realized that he had to get out of that situation. But there were so many rationalizations that could have gone through his head. And I mentioned how Satan would be planning them there. My family disowned me. They tried to kill me. They sold me as a slave into Egypt. This woman's beautiful. If I don't sleep with her, she's going to make life difficult for me. All these rationalizations that he could have made. But instead, this is what he said. He said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? 
So he says no. That's his answer, and he's sticking to it. And what he was saying is, this isn't a religion for me. This is a relationship. How could I wound the close relationship that I have with the Lord? So there's a lesson for each one of us in that. It's to be prepared. So we need to maybe work on our relationship with our spouse by communicating and becoming involved in their life. Communication is the key. And men, maybe we need to turn off the sports channel at times and actually talk to our wives. Did you ever hear about what happened at the St. Petersburg Zoo in Russia? They were having trouble getting their orangutans to mate frequently, and the population was actually dropping. So they set up video monitors outside the cages with videos of, you know, what was going on in hopes of monkey see, monkey do. But instead of this increasing things, the male orangutans were so enthralled by watching a TV that they had even less interest in the females. And just imagine if they had more channels and a remote control. It would have been horrible for them. Protect your marital relationship by being romantic and by being affectionate with one another. And my wife is watching at home, and I know I've been busy with church stuff. <laughs> we'll, I have a date. We're going away for our 40th anniversary, so we're going to do something special. But years ago, the wives of a group of men that I was leading, they came up to me and they said, would you teach our husbands to be more romantic? Because they'd heard about how I planned some getaways for my wife and I. I said, how can I teach these guys? So we talked about a few things. And then eventually one guy came up to me. He said, I booked a, a weekend for my wife and I in a bed and breakfast. I hope you're happy. And I said, well, it's not for me. It's for you and your wife. So protect your marital relationship. If you're single, make certain that you are in a good relationship as well, a relationship that's not unhealthy, a relationship that's not unholy. And instead of giving into temptation, Joseph ran out of the building. And it doesn't sound all that spiritual, but sometimes in order to walk with God, you have to run away from the devil. And no wonder we're warned in 1 Thessalonians 5, and stay away from everything that is evil. The King James translation says, avoid the appearance of evil. But our problem is that we enjoy getting too close to sin, and we get as close as we possibly can. Growing up, on a farm, there would occasionally be wildlife that would get into our garbage or they would get into some of our buildings. And we didn't have rifles or shotguns on our farm. I don't really know why. It seemed to be the in thing everywhere. So we had to trap these animals. And we would put a certain kind of food in the trap to try and draw the animal in. And it wouldn't do anything the first day. We'd change what we had the second day, maybe still no response. And then the third day, there's that raccoon in the trap. You know something? Satan's strategy is just like that. At first, he entices you with someone's appearance. If that doesn't work, then he changes the menu a little bit. Then it's someone's affluence. And if that doesn't work, then maybe it's someone who gives you a little more attention at work. 
Satan knows what he's doing. He just keeps changing the menu until he finds something that you can't resist. Solomon said in Proverbs 7, By her clever words, she made him give in. By her pleasing words, she led him into wrongdoing. All at once he followed her, like an ox led to the butcher, like a deer caught in a trap. And he didn't know what he did would kill him. There are so many who've been tracked and tricked and trapped by Satan's scheme. And the only way to get out of that bondage and to receive freedom is by turning your life over to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 7, the kind of sorrow God wants makes people change their hearts and lives. This leads to salvation, and you cannot be sorry for that. But the kind of sorrow the world has brings death. So genuine repentance is more than being sorry that you got caught. It means you're sorry enough to quit, to change your behavior. And the Lord can restore you, and he can renew you through prayer and repentance and time. Listen to the growth journey of King David after he had committed adultery and been confronted. So it's in Psalm 32. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. So we see acknowledgement, we see confession, we see forgiveness, and then we see restoration. And notice that God doesn't just forgive the sin, he even forgives the guilt of your sin. So in John 8, Jesus looked at that woman and he said, you may go now, but don't sin anymore. She had been given a new lease on life. It didn't matter what she had been. What mattered was she had been challenged to change. We're all impure in some way, but please realize that when God's truth is preached and the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart and you begin to wrestle with making him a commitment to him as the Lord of your life, you have to turn those areas over to him. You have to put your focus on Jesus Christ. One guy said that he was a hopeaholic, and I liked that because I thought, I'm a hopeaholic too. And a hopeaholic is someone addicted to the simple belief that Jesus Christ is in the business of transforming lives. And I have hope that God can transform any one of us. The Apostle Paul was a hopeaholic, and for a good reason. He had been a murderer of Christians, and now he became an apostle of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, he said, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he goes on to list some of the sins that will prevent people from inheriting the kingdom of God. Sexually immoral, idolaters, thieves, the greedy, swindlers. And then in 11, he said, Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what some of you were, but you've changed. So it's not just the church in Corinth that these words can be written to. It's the church in Halifax. It's the church of Halifax Christian Church because we have gone through transformation as well. Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question today is, are you in Christ Jesus? Jesus said to the woman, go now, 
and leave this life of sin. And this morning, I want to invite you to come and to leave your life of sin. And it doesn't matter what your life has been like. It doesn't matter if it's been a life of immorality or a life of grief or greed or doubt or maybe a lack of commitment. You are called to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. What matters is that you embrace Jesus Christ because he is still in the business of changing lives, and he can change yours.